A quick note to our listeners. In this month's podcast, we discuss sex scandals, including the sexual assault of minors, sexual coercion, and gender discrimination. Please take care of yourself. If this isn't the right content for you, you may want to skip ahead to our second segment. You can also check out the Jewish Survivors of Harassment and Abuse Network, found at jshan, that's J-S-H-A-N, dot org. Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox. And I've got Mimi Lewis joining us from Somerville, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. This month, we're also joined by guest host Erin Taylor. Erin is a teacher, farmer, community organizer, and podcast producer. She lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hi, Erin. Hi. Thanks for having me. We're so excited that you're here. Yes. This month, we're talking about several recent scandals involving Jewish youth groups and youth leaders. Um, to talk about what, if anything, we can hope Jewish organizations might start doing to keep children and employees safe from sexual predators. Um, and for our second segment, we're going lighter. We're going to be talking about Hanukkah Kitsch. I was the one who suggested that we talk about this first segment about some of the scandals around Jewish youth groups lately. There's been one at um, USY that involved um, some people that I know. There is one in the Haredi community um, of a children's author who's been accused of sexually abusing some teen girls. And there's also been a case of a professor at HUC who has now died and um, seems to have been involved in a lot of um, sexual harassment and racial harassment and other rough behaviors. And so I feel like there's this conversation has started in a new way around particularly youth. Um, and how our communities can do better in keeping um, keeping Jewish youth groups as a safe environment for Jewish teens. And I, I don't know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I guess like my Jewish youth group experiences that I like spent a lot of time in USY. I went to a couple of NCSY events because I went to an Orthodox high school and I didn't see or experience anything that was abusive. But like looking back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it would have been really easy for something like that to happen. Um, and for it to be not like covered up, but like actually just like, and for it to be an open secret, which it seems like was the case um, with this person um, in, in USY. Um, I'm curious what your all experiences have been and, and how you've been thinking about these things. I also, Tamar, you know, know some of the people involved in the USY case. And some of the things that I've heard from people is there's a sense that youth groups and summer camps, this might be in the non-Orthodox world exclusively, but I kind of imagine it's in the Orthodox world too, that there's like just a sexualization and, and just like an energy around sex and hooking up and being teenagers that exists. Um, and so I think that for a lot of people who knew this person at USY or for whom this was sort of like an open secret, it feels like, oh, wait, 
yeah, no, I guess that is inappropriate. But at the time, it just felt like the water we're all swimming in, like raging hormones, talking about hooking up, points for hooking up with the most people, like all of that. Um, I think it's also important to note that oftentimes at summer camps and in youth groups, it's like the quote unquote adults in the room are very barely removed from teenagers themselves. I mean, camp counselors are 18, 19, and youth group leaders, they're sometimes still in college themselves or just post-college, you know, and I, I guess I'm saying all of this to sort of underscore the potential for confusion that goes on in these like murky, <laughs> really confusing hormone fueled environments. Um, and I think that's for me, why the conversation about what do we do as the, be it parents, institution leaders or community members writ large, what do we do to say to like write clear standards for this murky territory? Because an 18 year old is just not going to be able to to really have a clear sense of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate when it comes to a 15 year old camper. Like it, it's just really confusing and we need good institutional boundaries and rules and culture. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it as like the water people were swimming in Mimi, because I, so I was in USY as a teenager and loved it and didn't, have these kinds of experiences, but I didn't, I went to a non secular camp. Um, and at my sleepaway camp, it was absolutely forbidden to kiss, to do any kind of sexualized activity. Of course, some people managed to do it. Um, but they're also the oldest campers were 14 and the youngest staff were 19. And I worked there for a few summers and then worked at a Jewish camp and was totally shocked when I got to, I won't <laughs> name the camp, but when I got to this Jewish camp and saw staff who had not had a summer off between being a camper and a staff member, um, they had just gone all the way through the pipeline, uh, way less training than we got. And this sexualization that I was aware of because I had friends who went to Jewish camp and I knew that it was really common to have all your, your first kiss and maybe lose your virginity and all of these things at Jewish camp. And it was just so different than my experience. Um, which I think just highlights to me that it is very, it does really seem like the water people are swimming in, but it's not the only way for camp to happen. <laughs> um, but what came up for me, like, reading this and thinking about this was just thinking about being at like having a memory of being at like a USY retreat, everybody's in sleeping bags next to each other, all genders of people and just having some boy kind of like reach over in the middle of the night and just, you know, kind of like move towards making out towards whatever with no conversation. This was not someone I had been like flirting with earlier in the day. And it just made me reflect on how 
there was no part of my teenage experience, like in Jewish spaces that talked about consent or had any kind of sexual education. Whereas friends who grew up in the Unitarian church, there is this amazing curriculum, the OWL, Our Whole Lives curriculum that is part of religious school and youth groups that's teaching about consent, that's teaching about your body. And so I do think there are things not just in terms of making rules, but actually building it into the culture that could be happening. Uh, yes. Uh, so many snaps to that. I So I've been thinking so much about how I think especially... well. The fo- I'm, I've said this before, but like the focus on Jewish continuity is so it's so weird and it ends up being this weird pressure to have sex that we like start pouring onto like literal children when they're in like middle and high school and people start talking about Jewish continuity and how important it is. And it's like, yeah, like when you're 14, you understand what be fruitful and multiply means. And like it doesn't read as like, okay, we should all like get married and have children as teenagers. But it does read as like, it is important that we hook up in a Mm -hmm. weird way. Like that's kind of how the I don't know, that is how the message kind of plays out in a way. And I think that the youth groups and camps really have some thinking to do about how they talk about like, what, what are we trying to do? Because I do think that they, in the past, and I don't, I don't know exactly what it's like right now, but really have been selling themselves as like, this is a way where Jewish kids will make connections with other kids that might lead to them getting married and having kids. Which like, yeah, that might happen. But is that actually your goal? Or are you trying to like provide Jewish kids with like meaningful connection to Judaism that they can bring forward with them for the rest of their lives? And if they also meet someone who they date for, you know, and then marry and have kids with, great. But like, is that the point? Or is the point to actually teach them like how to have a meaningful Jewish life? So I think that like, there's just a lot of sexualization that was kind of implicit in a lot of those kinds of experiences that needs to be kind of teased apart. And I think that people who are in charge of it, like, there need, they need to think, like, have some hard conversations about like, where are we actually trying to go here? And how can we like, make it clear that we're not actually trying to like pressure kids to hook up? Um, And I'd like, that's, a really hard culture change to make, especially with teenagers who like, you know, many of them really want to hook up and Mm -hmm. that's fair. But yeah, I mean, I, I just finished reading this book called um, girls and sex by Peggy Orenstein. And it's exactly what it sounds like. And she interviewed like 70 or more um, teen girls, teen and young women about their like thoughts about sex and sexuality. And it really struck me reading the book, how many of the girls she talked to, she like talked about how like being at Jewish schools or Jewish camps and having experiences like that was not at all the point that she was making, but it came up a number of times. And I was like, yep, checks out. Like I totally believe that. Um, And like one of the big things that she comes away with at the end of this book is like, we need to do a way better job teaching teens about this stuff. And um, we need to push ourselves to be like, super 
honest and thoughtful um, about this kind of thing. And that is something that like, if we don't actually offer it to teens, then like, they will not necessarily and in many cases, like will not have an opportunity to figure it out. Like, they will end up being assaulted, um, or they will just end up having like really unfulfilling, um, difficult sex lives, because they just like haven't ever been taught um, how to think about like their own bodies and consent and pleasure and like what they actually want. Um, and you know, how to have conversations, like, I actually don't want you to do that. Mm -hmm. What is a better place for that (laughs) than a Jewish youth group? Like, honestly, like to be able to teach honestly, um, and helpfully about those topics is so meaningful. And it is something that I think like teens want. And if we gave it to them, like backed with Jewish values, then it would be so, so powerful. It seems like such a missed opportunity that it isn't happening already. And it does seem like really the key to the culture change. I also imagine it would be like very difficult to get a lot of buy-in from some of the community around it, but maybe less so now. I mean, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I think Erin pointing out Putting out the our whole lives curriculum that UCC incorporates so well. Um, I remember I, a minion I go to meets in a UCC church. And so I was either nursing or pumping in their library and just like perusing all of these books that they have that bring in this curriculum and the posters. And I, I think it's something that's being done elsewhere really well and that we could totally incorporate into, I mean, I can see certain movements already working on that and camps too. I mean, I think that camps are really trying to move away from hookup culture, but also like a culture that comments on kids' bodies and their clothes, like to be more sensitive to even just the affluence that's really ingrained in a lot of Jewish summer camps. Um, and the heteronormativity that comes with the emphasis on hookup culture and that then hurts kids, um, all kids. So I, yeah, I'm really curious. I haven't really heard, like, what are the cool organizations doing that training and that thinking, um, and education, but I'd be excited about it. I mean, I did. I shared and we'll share in the show notes, an organization called Alenu, Safeguarding Our Children. And they seem a little bit more um, uh, institutionally focused, like trainings and best practices and protocols for what you do when somebody comes forward um, and screening tools for volunteers and employees, which I think is important. Um, But it doesn't get to really the the youth empowerment piece, which both have to happen, I think. I think that kind of points to the difference among some of the stories we were talking about, right? Because one of them took place at a camp. There is that kind of messiness and lack of boundaries. But two of them were people who were very much adults, very much in positions of power over younger people. And so it does seem like obviously these are related issues. And if we're, if we were like 
teaching a culture of consent and have this amazing sex ed curriculum in like all kinds of Jewish institutions, then probably that would prevent some of that um, abuse that goes on among adults because people would be growing up with a much healthier sense of what it means to be in relationship physically and emotionally to other people. And some of that would still probably happen. And so that kind of screening and training, like that seems to be more aimed at like those particular kinds of power dynamics that exist, right? When there's somebody who's a really charismatic leader, which was the case with both of the people, um, both in the reform movement and the Haredi community, um, who just, yeah, when you're in that position of power, there are things that you can do that people will not feel like they're empowered to speak up about. Probably even if you have a lot of amazing safeguards in place, but I do think some of those safeguards could help. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between kind of just the general hookup culture vibes of camp. Um, and like this really kind of troubling abuse. The Haredi um, author, his name was Chaim Walder, is Chaim Walder. And he was like an author, is an author and a psychotherapist. And one of the things that I keep coming back to about this story is like, I don't know. I think this is probably anathema in the Haredi community, but I think we've got to take people off of their, of this like worship status or this, like there's such a gadol and they're so, um, so wise and please, please let me send my adolescent to you for psychotherapy and please, please let me bring you to my synagogue. Like, I know, I know that doesn't jibe with a culture that like where we all stand up when an eminent rabbi enters the room, but it just like, it puts so much power in the hands of people who are just human and teaches everybody else like, well, of course, everything they do is right. And of course you should go along with it. And of course, when they say, don't tell your parents, I don't know, just like I, that culture to me, like is so dangerous when it comes to our children and other vulnerable people. I disagree that I think it's like specific to the Orthodox community. I mean, it looks a specific way in the Orthodox community, but like ultimately what we're talking about is like a charismatic figure who people have a lot of trust in. Um, and that certainly describes like the leaders um, of uh, like a, a bunch of the different leaders in all of the movements who yeah. have been um, found to be, you know, people with who that people misplace their trust in. And I, I think know, that that's like, fair. I think I was, what I was trying to say Tamara, is that it seems like it might be an even harder thing to, to, um, to sort of scrape out in Haredi communities, but you're right. You know, it's the, the problem of charismatic, of charismatic leaders and the power that they sort of can hold on to over the rest of us is across the board and across not just religious communities. I think that there is a issue around privacy and modesty that sometimes, um, in the Orthodox world can make it a little bit easier for a bad actor to get away with something. Um, you know, in the case of the guy in USY, like 
when one of the assaults happened, the person who was assaulted immediately afterwards, like left and went and told someone, a staff person immediately afterwards, um, which is not a story that you hear very often. Um, but that was also like 20 years ago and nothing or not quite 20 years ago, but nothing came of it, uh, of the fact that, that he reported it immediately, ultimately. Um, and so I think that like, one of the things that this, all of these stories brought up for me is like how painful it is when an institution that you actually like love and brought a lot of like something good to your life when you see it responding so, so badly in a situation like this, like ultimately it just feels like USY has really not just now, but over time just did a really bad job of addressing this issue with this particular person and with similar cases um, with other people. Like they just have not actually, they had a lot, you know, they, they have had essentially 40 years in which to learn from mistakes and it does not seem that they, that they did. And I think that that is consistent across all the movements. Like this, these are not like one-offs. These are things that happen consistently over time. And there are ways I think to, you know, to strengthen um, an organization so that it happens less often, but also to respond, to respond appropriately and sensitively to victims. And that's like another piece that really hasn't been, um, that really hasn't been happen happening. Like, I think there's like the educating, um, of teens themselves so that they like really have good, um, models of like how to respond in tough situations and how to deal with each other. Um, and so that like, if they get assaulted, they can actually feel empowered to report it and like what, what they should, you know, that it's not okay for it to happen. That's one piece. There's like, institutions protecting themselves from people like this and making sure that people like that don't get actually hired. Um, and that like when something comes forward, they deal with it appropriately. But then I think like another piece is like how they respond publicly and how they really like do some like chuva and like really think about like, who are we and what have we done wrong here and like communicate respectfully <laughs> And like that hasn't happened in most of the situations um, that I'm aware of. And I think like in a way that ends up being the most painful thing for people because it's like, I don't know if it's realistic to imagine that big organizations are going to effectively keep out every single like bad actor. I wish it was, but I think it's not necessarily realistic, but like expecting them to both like respond appropriately when it does happen and internally and when it becomes public to really do some like appropriate chuva that's a really big piece and it really affects how people feel about the institution long term and it's just like and you know what i what's really interesting to me is i mean i have not been following the Chaim Wilder situation very closely at all but i have been seeing that there's a lot of jewish bookstores that have been saying like oh we're not selling these books anymore and like that's kind of great like mm -hmm. that seems to me like you know i mean it's a very small step obviously like victims need a lot more than just the books to not continue making money but like that is a good and public step um, that does show like, we believe these people, this was not an okay thing. And we can't support this person anymore. 
And, you know, I mean, obviously the bookstores are not the same as the publishers and the communities that supported this person, but it has been really interesting to me to see that happen. Um, and it does feel like a shift. Yeah. yeah, I think that one of the big questions that came up for me reading about all of these situations, which I think you're really pointing to there is just how does the healing happen, right? When the community that's supposed to be the people that support you when something hard is going on is the place, the location of the trauma that just seems really, really hard. And to have the place that you would normally go to for that support be a place where it might continue to feel terrible to go to for years and years after. It seems like something that all of these institutions and kind of the community as a whole really have to grapple with if we're going to become like safer and better places for kids and, and adults. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, I think as relatively likely that we'll have an opportunity to revisit this conversation sometime in the future. So, um, yeah, if you have um, any thoughts about anything that we that we missed or that you like us to talk about around this in the future, uh, we would love to to hear from you about this. All right, shall we move on to our second topic? Yes, let's talk. We are recording this in the days leading up to Thanksgiving, which are also the days leading up to Hanukkah this year, and you know. Around this time, we start to see all of the Christmas merchandise come out. And now I feel like a lot of companies have put like a pretty low level of effort to some Hanukkah merchandise. So we're seeing lists of Jewish faux pas of Christmas or Hanukkah faux pas. Um, But we wanted to talk about the Hanukkah tchotchkes. Like, what do we actually need and want? How do we want big companies like Target and Bed Bath & Beyond and even CVS to approach Hanukkah? And, And just sort of generally, like, what do you think about the tchotchkeization of Hanukkah? What's what are your reactions? So for me, one of the big questions I had coming into this conversation was, is it truly the case that in the last few years, there's been like a big uptick in how much of this merchandise is out there and how much of them just like terrible misses, like the putting Yom Kippur or Passover on a Hanukkah product Or am I just noticing it more? And so I tried to do a little bit of digging to figure that out. And from the few pieces that I found out there, it does seem like in the last five years or so, at least people who keep better track of this and writers for Jewish publications are also noticing a much, like just much bigger proliferation of these products, um, which I just have a lot of questions about like, why is that the case? So that, I don't know, I think that's like kind of an interesting place to potentially start. One of the hypotheses was that our generation, basically when we were kids was the beginning of like making Hanukkah feel more like Christmas, adding presents to keep us engaged in Judaism and not feeling kind of jealous of Christmas. And now that we're adults, there need to be adult products for us. Um, which I thought was really interesting. And another interesting thing I read 
in a Feller article that we can link in the show notes was kind of this history of Hanukkah merchandise that basically traces there being Hanukkah merchandise and Hanukkah advertising, some of which had Christmas imagery back a very long time to the early part of the 20th century in the United States, but that most of it was produced by Jewish people until very recently. And it's in the last five to 10 years that these bigger corporations have realized they can monetize Hanukkah as much as they're monetizing Christmas. And they just don't even seem to have like read a Wikipedia article about Hanukkah, like really (laughs) low level of self-education there, which I... That part I find particularly frustrating. <laughs> I also want to just talk briefly about like the history of it. I, I read um, in the Atlantic, there was a piece, I think back, yeah, back in 2015 by Emma Green called Hanukkah. Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> and she sort of dives into the history of how Hanukkah has become this commercialized holiday. And, you know, she talks about like, in the mid 19th century, like the Victorian era was all about like promoting the household and early reform rabbis in Cincinnati were like, great, let's like really talk about the women's role in making the food and in lighting the candles at home and educating the children. And then another really interesting data point was um, in the early 20th century, we saw the first use of an English word in a Yiddish um, in a Yiddish newspaper, and that word was presence. That's the first time they ever used an English word in a Yiddish newspaper was to say presence because they were talking about Hanukkah presents that were being, Aaron, like you said, that were being made by Jewish manufacturers. So it probably wasn't, you know, deck the halls with matzo balls because that makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) We started to see, we started to see, I think maybe like the kitsch. Tamar, I'll I'll go to you. And and later I want to talk about like, maybe how does it feel or something? Yeah. I think to me, like this does feel like it has gotten way more intense like in the last five to ten years that like there is so much more Hanukkah crap available and I do feel like it's I I cannot believe I'm about to say this but I feel like it's an Instagram social media thing where it's like everybody is showing off like their family in their Christmas pajamas or like their you can see in all of your friends' living rooms to their like holiday decor. And so if you are Jewish and you are not doing a Christmas tree, it makes you want to have your own holiday decor and like companies like Target are like, great, we can sell you more crap. And like, they don't have to think hard about like what it's not like they're like, consulting with like Santa about like what the appropriate thing is to say for Christmas because like there's like 80 different things that like imply Christmas and that's all they need to do and so they're putting in that exact same level of effort for Hanukkah it's just that sometimes it's fine and sometimes like it's a real miss because they don't actually know anything about Hanukkah and like I don't know there's a part of me that's like I don't really care if like the if there's like really stupid nonsensical like Hanukkah throw pillows for sale some at 
Kohl's or whatever. I don't know who's buying them. Like, presumably, if they really don't make sense to people who are Jewish, like they will not get and end up being purchased. And then they will not reoccur next year. I have seen people be like, genuinely upset that there isn't like more of this stuff for Hanukkah. Like, People, I, I, a friend of mine recently posted about how upset she was that there was just like a tiny little end cap for of Hanukkah stuff at her Target, and she was like sad about it and posted about how she talked with her kids about how sad she was about it, and like, I mean, that's how she feels about it, and that's completely legitimate. It doesn't make me sad because, like, I don't need any of that stuff for Hanukkah. And like, I'm not saying I don't do anything like kitschy for Hanukkah. I just don't need to go to Target. Like my like kitschy Hanukkah is that I like spend entirely too much time and energy making donuts that are not that good. Like that's, <laughs> that's my thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on people who want like dreidel tinsel. I just like, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. But I do think that it is like, it's because we're seeing everybody else's like holiday aesthetic that like we're feeling like partially like there are some people who are feeling like I want mine. And there's also companies who are like, this is a market. Yeah. We want to sell people. So that's our job. So we're going to do it. But they're just not that good at it, which is what's interesting. I even wonder cynically, like I think that people might be more likely to buy, you know, deck the halls with matzo balls or like happy holidays and then ironically wear the sweater or like iron you know i think that if and for some of these things the further off they are the funnier they are and then they get like the novelty buy which i don't know like what's the market for novelty buys but high the market for novelty buys is really high and right. i think you are 100 percent right like in some cases they clearly have no idea what they're doing but in some cases like they know that it doesn't make sense, but that makes it funny. And right. they're going with that. Like, that's what ugly Christmas sweaters, like ugly Christmas sweaters were not a joke originally, but now they fully are. And like, there's like whole lines of like intentionally ugly Christmas sweaters. And like, that's what this is. It's right. like, it used to be accidentally ugly stuff. And now it's intentionally nonsensical stuff but it gets bought. Right. And I, I think you're totally right that there are people who are buying it ironically. There definitely are people who are buying it because they want to feel included in the holiday season. I, in looking for kind of some of the history of it, I came upon an article from review.com called 10 things that will make your Hanukkah more lit than a menorah. <laughs> and some of the same things I'd seen on the sites that are like compiling all the fails we're on this like earnest, sincere, like here it's from 2017. There's the oi to the world pillow, this very sincere list of things that this writer is saying made her feel so included in the holiday season, including her happy Lamaka sweater. Um, and I think for me, it's hard for me to so I moved from Boston, from, from two blocks from Mimi, um, to where there is a big, very textured Jewish community to Colorado Springs, where there's a very small Jewish community and a very large 
vocal evangelical community three years ago. And so it's hard for me to get a sense of like, did all the, did I just start noticing this stuff because I was much more in the minority or because that was the time that it was proliferating? But it's a lot harder for me to appreciate the irony of it and just think it's funny now that I'm working in a public school where there's a Christmas sweater day, mm. right? And I have the option of like, wear a Christmas sweater, wear a Hanukkah themed Christmas sweater, which I think is words that aren't appropriate for podcasts <laughs> and, or <laughs> be a Grinch, right? Like do nothing. Don't participate in the 12 days of Christmas stuff leading up to winter break. And so it makes it in that setting for me, I can appreciate that. It's funny that some of the stuff is just so far off. And I can understand that for some people it's just just all in good fun. Um, but I think I'm a lot more irked by it in this setting. And the other thing I was thinking about when we chose this topic was just the way in which, because Hanukkah is so close to Christmas and Christmas is so commercialized, that commercialization really mediates my relationship to Hanukkah in a way that is not the case for any other Jewish holiday, right? Every other Jewish holiday, like I might get annoyed that I don't get it. And I have to take all my PTO days for it or whatever, like capitalism still playing a role, but my relationship to the holiday is much more mediated by family traditions, by the halacha, by my own, like making sense of the holiday and its meaning and what practices I want to do by my community. Whereas with Hanukkah, so much of the relationship is about like, is in, in reaction to Christmas, right? It's like telling, trying to convince people that it's not that important of a holiday or explaining to people that like, it's not really part of the holiday to do presents um, or like all these kind of comparisons and like making the decision of, do I want to wear an ugly Hanukkah sweater or not? And it means that like, I realize that I don't have as much of a relationship with the actual holiday as I do with many other Jewish holidays, including other ones that are like, quote unquote, minor holidays, um, which made me kind of sad and want to recommit this year to like, just developing my own relationship with Hanukkah that like, doesn't have to do with all of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think that at the end of the day, one of the things that's hard is that it's kind of hard to have an, a, like, a great relationship with Hanukkah. It's a weird holiday. It is a weird holiday. You know, there are a lot of like layers of other holidays sort of stacked onto it. Even just like the commentary about it is, I don't know, feels forced at times. I, I was reading something weirdly in a Canadian journal about the title is how I learned to stop worrying and love Hanukkah kitsch. And it Part of it is an interview with this Rabbi Cleel Rose in Edmonton, which is, I learned, in Alberta, Canada. He was basically saying, this doesn't bother me. The commercialization of Hanukkah doesn't bother me like it bothers my Christian colleagues because Hanukkah is not that big of a deal. It's not a sacred celebration. And he says, funny sweaters or tacky toys for a deeply spiritual holiday such as Yom Kippur would ignite a backlash. But for Hanukkah, it's just more acceptable. And we have to sort of come to terms with the fact that Hanukkah doesn't have a lot of requirements and it doesn't require too much of us or others. And therefore, 
both that void and its proximity to Christmas, just let it be this canvas that we can put a lot of our sort of commercial, but also like kitschy or fun energy into. And, and even, you know, you'll uh, going back to the Atlantic article in the Atlantic, they talk about like, um, they talk about Chabad and like Chabad is all about like visibly promoting Jewish life and bringing unaffiliated Jews in. And Hanukkah is perfect for them because it's not Chag. Like you can't have a Yom Kippur celebration at the White House, but you sure as hell can have a Hanukkah celebration at the White House. It's eight days long. It's not Chag. Like it, it's a very visible, weird holiday. It's both visible and sort of empty. And like, maybe it's okay to fill it with, I don't know, what was it? Mench on the bench oh, and no. like giant menorah. <laughs> Listen, I put my foot down at mench on the goddamn bench. <laughs> I also, I think there's also kind of like some different categories of Hanukkah kitsch. Like there's like actually really fun stuff that seems to understand what Hanukkah is or what Judaism is. There's stuff that just makes kind of like a silly, like silly mistakes. Like there's a lot of seven branch menorahs right. out there in and it's like, okay, like there should be two more stems on that. But like you at least didn't put like matzah. And then there's the like Hanukkah is Christmas stuff. And, and I think there are like layers of how, much it frustrates me depending on which of these things it is in that same time period. I also feel like I've seen a lot more like actually interesting, like artisanal Jewish merchandise created by Jewish people. Like I've seen like Hala jewelry out there that I would love to wear because I love Hala, (laughs) like things like that. Yeah, I think, you know, the dinosaur menorah is in a different category <laughs> than the mensch on a bench. Like, I actually do kind of want that dinosaur menorah. Wait, do you remember right, the right. Sonica party at your house where we made a dinosaur menorah and it caught on fire? Yep. Some things should not be DIY'd <laughs> and there are things that involve fire. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a difference between just like making a Hanukkah like fun and funny versus right. like making Hanukkah Christmas. Okay, right. I have an extremely um, hot take on how we should all be celebrating Hanukkah. Originally, the Maccabees were, the reason that Hanukkah is eight days long is because the Maccabees were celebrating Sukkot when they rededicated the temple. Like they'd missed Sukkot, they got the temple back, they were like, we have to do Sukkot because we missed it. So they did it then. Wait, Tamar, are you going to tell us we all have to go go camping? camping. I'm just saying, like, let's get out our lulabs. Like, let's do Sukkot. Like, like you want you want to, like, add something (laughs) meaningful to this holiday? Like, let's go. Like, put up your sukkah. Bring back the spach. You can use a Christmas tree for the roof of your sukkah. (laughs) I solved it. Amazing. (laughs) Brilliant. I'm going to dedicate my Hanukkah sukkah with some dreidel tinsel <laughs> that I will shop high and low to find. Just don't burn right. down your sukkah. Yeah, I'll try. By lighting too many candles in it or putting the candles too close right. to the sky. Like. You know, it is also like 
my always every year my complaint about Sukkot is that like I'm burnt out by then. And the thing about Hanukkah is like I'm not burnt right. out. I'm ready to exactly. celebrate. This is okay. I just came up with this live on the show. You're onto something. This is my new thing. Make Hanukkah Sukkot again. (laughs) (laughs) Please show me your gingerbread soda or something. I'm on it. One, a friend of mine is planning to try to do a different fried food for every one of the nights, which I also, you could do that and eat them in your sukkah. I think that would also be great. Exactly. Eat all the fried things you want in your sukkah. Like, it's perfect. It's probably safer to fry things in your sukkah than in your kitchen. So true. So, And then you won't end up having that smell in your your house for the whole holiday. The worst. Solves so many problems all at once. Yep. God, this this is is, the best idea I've ever had. (laughs) This is apropos of nothing, but on that reviewed list of um, things that will make your Hanukkah more lit... One of the things is a Hanukkah scented candle, which only just now occurred to me is like weird on so many (laughs) levels because we already have a lot of Hanukkah candles. (laughs) And this is like a big scented candle that is apparently... Does it smell like latkes? It says, this Hanukkah smells like latkes with applesauce, parentheses, yum, but also warm jelly donuts. Oh, no. How, no. How is that possible? <laughs> wow, there's really a lot of layers of wrongness there. And it's not as obvious as Deck the Halls with matzo balls. No, I kind of skimmed over it, that one the first time. It's really bad. That sounds really bad. Yeah. The other thing, I, the one Hanukkah thing that I do in the in the products that I do think we they need to do away with is like a Haredi hat and beard as Hanukkah theme. That one actually yeah. seems kind of offensive to me. Yeah. Yes. The rest of it is just like frustrating. Yeah. That is like, you're making a person into a cartoon. We've learned that we're not supposed to do that. Or I thought we had. Yeah. It's a really good one. All right. Well, this was fun. Um, I solved the Hanukkah Christmas crisis, so I feel like we should go on to endorsements because (laughs) I'm not going to achieve this high ever again. (laughs) Mimi, what do you have to endorse? Do not say a Hanukkah-scented candle. Oh my God. (laughs) Those of you who have ever spent any time with a toddler, a very verbal toddler will know that they sometimes like push the lot your brain like by at like constantly asking for like the next level or more or more and so my son now whenever we sing a song at you know bedtime or even during the day then he'll say can you sing it in a different tune and so (laughs) (laughs) it all sort of started because I had been singing him a bedtime shema that I learned and then he was confused when other people sing a different version of Shema. So I explained to him that there are different tunes. And so now he's like pushing us constantly. Like we need a different tune, a different tune. So I want to share one of my favorite different tunes. Um, this is a little bit of a log roll because it does feature my husband's um, Jewish acapella group from Tufts University called Sheer Appeal. Tufts um, 
mascot is the elephant, which is Peel. So sheer appeal. Um, but they have a really great version of Hine Matov. Um, and there's the different melodies are Swing Low Sweet Chariot and um, When the Saints Come Marching In. Um, and it's just, it's a lot of fun. If you need a version of Hine Mato for bedtime, it's also like, it's got a little bit of soothing element to it. And the best recording that I could find is a YouTube recording. And if you know my husband, you'll see him in the YouTube recording. So what more, what more can you ask for from me? There you go. Love it. Um, I did not know that Daniel was in Sheer Appeal. I love that. <laughs> I have had the pleasure of seeing that performed live because I went to college with Daniel and that's how I know Mibi. And I can attest that it is really beautiful. It's a nice version. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Erin, what do you have to endorse? Hey, I have one podcast that I thought of before that we started this conversation and one that came to mind during it. So I love podcasts. Uh, so the first one is an episode of the podcast Judaism Unbound. And it is a interview with rabbi and author Leah Moser, who wrote a book called Magical Princess Harriet. That's a YA novel um, about a young trans girl who discovers some magical powers, but all very much based in kind of Jewish mysticism and magic. And the book sounds great. But the interview was so fascinating. Leah Moser is a rabbi and she's trans and she converted to Judaism. And she they talk a lot in the interview about some of the parallels between the process of conversion and the process of coming out as trans. And just neither of those are experiences that I have, although my dad converted to Judaism. Um, and a lot of people I care a lot about converted and it just, the, the, the lining up of those experiences was so fascinating to me. And I felt like it helped me understand both of them better. Um, so would highly recommend that episode. And then the one that came to mind during this conversation, because we were talking about so many home goods <laughs> is an episode of the podcast. Nice try, um, from curve, which is hosted by Avery Truffleman, who does actually happen to be Jewish. And this season, so it's the podcast overall is about attempts at utopia. And this season is kind of about this concept of like making the home, your utopia, the whole season is great so far. Um, but I would particularly recommend the episode about the crock pot and the history of the crock pot, which has some perhaps unsurprising, um, Jewish his connections in, in how it came to be, um, that I won't give away, but are given away pretty quickly at the beginning of the episode. Um, I just think given yeah, talking about all these things we're bringing into our homes and which ones are Jewish and which ones are not, it's uh, very apt. I love that. I love that concept for a podcast too. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah I, I, I feel like, uh, the crackpot is definitely like the most Jewish of appliances. So. <laughs> yes. And it turns out that's true. <laughs> yes. I already mentioned this book, Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein, um, which I totally recommend. But I have two other, um, well, really just one other, but I have, I just want to do an update from um, our last episode. We talked about Jewish planners and um, 
I, we talked about like what we would want in a Jewish planner. And I found one that has most of that stuff. It's the driven day planner. And it literally has like a section for planning meals for Shabbat and Chag. And like on, on those pages, it has um, areas for planning meals and for like who are the guests that are coming. Um, It doesn't have candle lighting time printed in it but it has a place for you to write down the candlelighting time. Um, And like on the page that I am looking at right now, the like take it to the next level thing on the pages, fill out this month's Hanukkah page if you haven't yet. Um, And I am like this Thursday, take it to the next level is always plan Shabbos menu. Um, So, you know, I love that. It's it's honestly pretty good. Like I've been using it and I'm not using it. Like I'm not ever going to be a like heavy planner user, but as things go, it's meeting my needs. So I just wanted to let everybody know that it exists. You can get it. It's not that cheap. Like it's like $45 or something. But, um, but if you are looking for a planner that does the things that we said we wanted a planner to do, this one hits most of that, those things. Okay. But the real thing that I want to endorse is um, the Commentator's Bible by Michael Karasik. I mean, so the the Commentator's Bible, it's basically Mikra Okadolo translated into English. So it has all of the major commentaries translated into English and, and two translations um, of the English text. And um, it's available in five volumes. They're, they're big books. Um, and in my family, we bring whatever is the appropriate one to show with us on Shabbat. And it means that like I read like, basically like six commentaries on the Torah portion every week, which is amazing. Um, and like my Hebrew is very good. So I used to bring like a Hebrew micro with me to shul. Um, and I would use it, but like this allows me to just go much faster ultimately. And it's not the same, obviously as reading the Hebrew, but it's quite good. And what I love about it is that I pick up on something that I don't think I would have picked up on before, which is when the commentators are just like really dissing each other. <laughs> like mm-hmm. um, sometimes there are some pretty sick burns um, from one commentator to another. And um, I don't think I would have understood them. And sometimes the translator, Michael Karasik, like basically explains to you like what is happening here because it's not clear Um as, as insults go, sometimes there you have to kind of explain them. And I just love it. It's so funny. Um, and it really, it just like enhances my experience of, of thinking about Torah so much to have this and to be able to um, consult it. And my partner and I are very often like passing it back and forth during the Torah reading um, and consulting it. Like as we, if we're, if we're going to be reading Torah, we like look at it when we're learning our learning um, to try and understand things better. So um, again, it's not very cheap, but I really highly recommend it because it is like just a great um, resource to have. And um, yeah, sick, sick Bible burns. So an important, <laughs> important thing to have at your fingertips. It's not cheap, but now might be a good time to buy because there is a sale. The JPS, Pre- the Jewish Publication Society is having a sale for Hanukkah. So now might be the time to look it up. Just saying. Yeah. Best Hanukkah product we've found so far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Move over bench on the bench. 
Throw your mentor on the bed directly into the trench and go by this. Uh, all right. Well, I feel like we really hit all the important notes here. Um, takeaways we're all doing Sukkot on Hanukkah this year, and we're throwing away bench on the bench, and we're getting our commentator's Bible to learn good insults. There we go. Um, <laughs> I recognize that I just mentioned my own case here. Uh, I, we will be listening humility. to podcasts and singing Hine Matos. Yes, there we exactly. Go. Yes. That as well. <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much all for listening. And thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. It would be great if you have a minute, if you could review the show um, on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen to, um, you use to listen to the show. Um, We would also love to uh, hear what you want us to talk about on future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, um, or on our website, jpmedia.co, and choose Talking and Jewel from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media. Maybe that's how you want to celebrate your Sukkot at Hanukkah this year. Um, And that's a great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. Mimi, thank you so much. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was so fun. And have a wonderful Hanukkah. All right. We'll see you next month.